Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined, as usual, with my father, Jeff. G'day, Dad. How are you? Hi, Theo. Well, thanks. I'm not so well. That's what my voice sounds like crap. Um, I don't have swine flu, I don't think. I definitely have a man cold, um, and because of that, well, I'm just going to get Jeff to read the first intro, so you have to put up with my voice as little as possible. The fallacy or dodgy technique, the bit of humbug we're looking at tonight is um, argument by slogan. It starts now. Okay, argument by slogan, other terms and or related concepts. Mantra argument using emotive language, appealing to sentiment, cliché thinking, reflex thinking, mindless repetition. And our description, argument by slogan and the family of fallacies associated with argument by slogan, all have in common an intent on the part of the advocate to sidestep the issue under discussion and to wrongfoot the opponent. Instead of logically advancing a viewpoint and dealing with any challenges to that viewpoint, the advocate seeks to wear opposition down by repeatedly asserting a simplistic view of the issue. For example, at a rally to protest a meeting of the World Economic Forum, Brenda Dudgeon is challenged by a forum delegate from the Seychelles who asserts that his country needs foreign investment to progress she picks up her megaphone and begins to chant. In due course, other protesters take up the chant, and the delegate from the Seychelles is drowned out. Comment: There may or may not be some validity in the assertion that global capital oppresses the poor. Whatever the truth of the matter, the issue is far more complex than the slogan. And use of the slogan will not advance understanding. If Brenda's behaviour is extremely confrontational, she may even appear on television coverage of the event. If this is her sole aim, she has been successful. But her behaviour is most unlikely to persuade the uncommitted to her view, and it's very likely to entrench opposition to her view. Arguably, and ironically, the group least likely to benefit from her sloganeering is the poor. If Brenda's beliefs are sincere, and if she wishes to address the causes of poverty in the third world, she needs to engage in productive debate after some thorough self-education on the issues. She needs to break out of her coterie of like-minded activists and to substitute sober reflection and hard work or the warm inner glow of sloganeering. If, after sober reflection, Brenda has concluded that the unfettered flow of capital around the world is a primary cause of poverty, she will be able to mount a convincing argument. In advancing the argument, she will have supporting evidence for her views and practical suggestions for capital regulation, 
the uncommitted will seriously consider her perspective. In due course, and in her own small way, she might even advance the plight of the world's poor. It won't be as much fun as public posturing, chanting and sloganeering, but she might actually get results. The sight of a large group of self-satisfied demonstrators marching under a banner and chanting, What do we want? is now a commonplace. This ritual public performance may be boring, alarming, amusing or inspirational to the onlooker, depending on his or her political beliefs and on what answer the demonstrators give to their rhetorical question. What do we want? To the critical thinker, however, participation in a mindless crowd of sloganeers is not an effective vehicle for productive engagement with a substantive and difficult issue. Often a march under banners accompanied by an orchestrated chant is more about socialising and group cohesion rather than a serious attempt to right a wrong or to initiate political or social change. In most such demonstrations, visceral posturing has triumphed over intellectual engagement. It is possible for argument by slogan to manifest itself in even more mindless ways. One of the most outstandingly mindless is the mass-produced bumper sticker. Sloganeering marches may be futile, but at least walking and chanting is a mild form of healthy exercise. Political bumper stickers really only have one message, whatever the actual words on the sticker itself. The message, I am a clueless poseur, and I apparently believe, in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, that an infantile declarative statement stuck on the outside of my car amounts to a persuasive argument. Further, I am so bereft of wit, imagination, initiative and literary skills that I have to purchase the sticker off the shelf rather than creating one of my own. We know that this might seem to some to be a harsh judgment, but truth must prevail, even if the truth offends those asinine advocates who are also sticklers or stickers. Okay, so that was a good example of some sloganeering in a protest march. Uh, and again, apologies for the quality of my voice. I know normally you're used to my lucid and, uh, dare I say it, sexy baritone tones, but they're gone. Um, moving on. Uh, <clears throat> I think the general thing about a slogan and using a slogan is it actually probably is the number one tool for um, modern political discourse when it's used effectively because uh, it's about staying on message. Um, and so if you think about, I can the, some of the examples I tried to look for, but it was hard to f figure out what search terms to use on YouTube, but were examples where someone's interviewing a politician and they continually reframe the question so they can get their message back out there again and, and put their slogan back into it. So it didn't matter what the question was, the politician would reframe it to get back to their particular catchphrase that they were using at the moment. And that's probably the main example, I think, where they're being a bit fallacious, where they avoid the question and simply repeat a slogan. The other thing, Theo, is that um, 
interviewers are often ill-equipped to deal with that kind of strategy, so interviewers tend to panic and ask the same question again and again rather than saying explicitly, oh, you failed to answer that question, so we're obviously not going to get an answer, so I'll just move on, or something like that that would really challenge the interviewee. Yeah, exactly, and um, if you think about uh, the, the good interviewers, the ones who do, they hammer them on that and say, you haven't answered that question, you stop going off topic and they get stuck into them. And they might agree and then, then say, well, look, if you're not going to answer it, let's just move on, but they do pressure them on it. Um, okay, so now slogans are very effective, and everyone can think back to the last uh, US election where Obama won with the yes, we can, the change we believe in, and all those ones, and they were really effective and they worked because he tapped into what people were feeling, and that worked. Now, if, if all that is is empty rhetoric, then, you know... Um, it's meaningless, but the point is they can be really effective, and so effective that Obama even accused uh, the other side of using his slogans. So let's have a listen to Obama talking about his use of slogans. This has been our message from the day we began this campaign. This has been our message when we were up in the polls and when we were down in the polls. When folks said we were sure to win and folks said we were sure to lose. And until now, that's not been John McCain's message. For the last 19 months, he has argued that we don't need change. What qualifies him to be president is the quarter century he spent in Washington. The experience that comes from decades of walking the halls of power. But now... Suddenly, John McCain says he's about change, too. He's even started using our lines. He's saying he wants to turn the page. He says he wants to take on the lobbyists. He even put out an ad today, get this, saying that Governor Palin and he would bring, and I quote, the change that we need. Does that sound familiar? Listen, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But, but you know what? Pueblo, instead of borrowing our lines or our slogans, I wish you'd actually borrow some of our ideas. Okay, so obviously, look, and you know, so that's a pretty good example of the fact that um, now I don't, actually don't know how true all these claims are because I didn't really follow the U.S. election that closely. But you know, they are very powerful when they can they can be something that people frame their discourse around, and that's what Obama and his team obviously did really well. I mean, that's how he came from behind and beat Hillary, and then you know, wiped the floor with McCain. I mean, he had a lot of help because of people's perceptions of Bush, obviously. But and, he, and he's and he's a very good speaker, and he knows how to get the message across. But that was the thing. He had these key slogans that they used, and he knew about the slogans, and then the message was always around coming back to that slogan. It's only a fallacy, however, if that's all you do, is you just keep repeating the slogan, the mantra, without actually engaging in, in deeper conversation. And, you know, 
most politicians actually do would like to do that if they're given the opportunity, but a lot of the time they're not, or that comes back to bite them anyway. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about what Obama said in that excerpt was that he actually fairly acknowledged he was using slogans, and his complaint was the slogans were being borrowed by the other side. So he's not saying himself uh, or acknowledging that slogans are a weak form of argument or non-argument. And when somebody says, um, uh, can we do it? Yes, we can, and so on. Um, it's an aspirational kind of thing, and um, the, the duty of the fourth estate really should be to um, ask the candidates to elaborate on that. What do they mean by change? How will they affect change? Uh, given the constitutional limits to a president's power, um, how would he be different in Washington to other presidents and so on. And there's actually a cartoon on that theme which uh, will be linked to this uh, podcast and also an excerpt from The Onion which I think actually does a better job than my cartoon on this issue. Um, but once once Obama was elected, he then had the burden of solution and uh, the, the rhetoric, the, the, the rhetorical position of simply restating a slogan is no longer credible because he has to actually solve problems. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, and absolutely in terms of, again, if... The, uh, just quickly, the fourth estate, would that be journalists? Oh, journalists, and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? I, I um, it, it, it was um, a turn-of-the-century uh, term that was used to describe you know, the first estate, second estate, third estate, were the various political arms, the political arm of government, the executive power, the judges, the courts, the, courts. the legislature. And the fourth estate was um, seen as very powerful. Keeping, keeping the bastards honest. Yeah, so that's kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, now, so basically, but what they do is they frame a campaign around particular messages, and that doesn't necessarily mean a political campaign, it could just be in general. So just recently in Australia we had our... Um, First budget since the global financial crisis, and so of course that was a you know a huge big deal in terms of what they were spending money on and, and how much debt we were going to go into and so on. So the um, uh, the Australian Prime Minister basically the rhetoric they were using was to uh, get the balance right, and that was their key message they tried to push through. Now I'll just play a little clip where um, our Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uses that rhetoric. Um, a few times, uses that message a few times, but in saying that, I'm just going to play the first bit, but he does go on to talk for about two, three minutes about some specific details, so I'm not accusing him of being fallacious or anything like that, it's just an example of repeatedly making sure you get that key soundbite, that key message in there, so when it gets played on the news or whatever, that'll probably be the bit they go for, the get the balance right um, mantra. Right, Prime Minister is with us this morning. You've heard the editorials. We've heard what uh, Wayne Swan has said. Um, what do you think of the reaction so far? Well, I think it's uh, normal that you're going to have a complete uh, mix of reactions across the country. If you listen to one of those newspapers, it's saying we were too tough. Others are saying we're not tough enough. I believe we've got the balance right. You know why? Because we've got to deal with the reality of this recession now, pump as much into the economy right now, but provide a sustainable budget over the period ahead. 
that's what we've tried to do. I believe we got the balance right. It's a bit wimpy though, wasn't it? Sort of there's all this talk of 22. beer up, cigarettes up, all that sort of stuff. I don't, and and I cutting welfare. I, I don't seem to remember us saying we're going to put beer up, cigarettes up. That was one of your colleagues in the newspapers who wrote that. Uh, can I just say, uh, our challenge is to get the balance right. I mean, there are a lot of families out there, pensioners who are doing it tough at the moment. We've increased the single age pension. That's been squibbed by the previous South government for 12 years. We've done that. Okay, yeah, so that was Kevin Rudd being interviewed on the, uh, one of our morning shows here, Sunrise. Um, and again, he, you know, he's not, he does go on, the interview goes on for about another five minutes or so, and he, and he does explain in detail a lot of the different policy decisions and where money's going and whatnot as well. Um, but just the, the example there, you know, he really made sure to get in there initially about getting the balance right. Um, the other thing I'd just like to add, of course, we, we are not politically partisan in this, this blog and these uh, podcasts, but uh, i just making the observation that from that uh, audio clip there, you wouldn't have seen that uh, Kevin Rudd actually had a tinfoil hat on while he was saying that, that stuff. It was just an observation. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to wear a tinfoil hat. Uh, but I'm just making that point. But they, the party made him put that over his ears so he couldn't access them for the earwax. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so more Rudd. Um, and again, like I said at the beginning, I did try and search for some examples from some people from the right side of politics in Australia. Um, but, I, you know, the key terms are difficult to find, so I did do a fair bit of searching. But these ones, Rudd's just a... Rudd is awesome at staying on message and using the same bloody word over and over again. It's just an innate skill he seems to have. Um, <clears throat> the example now I've got is from the weekend version of it, the same show, Sunrise. Uh, as a journalist here, political journalist, Mark Riley, and he does a thing called The Riley Diary, which is actually pretty good. Um, it's a weekly wrap-up of politics, and it's usually pretty humorous. And he always likes getting Rudd being repetitive and saying the same thing over and over again. So this example is just from one press conference. Um, and it's all about getting to the core of the problem or the core issue. The Kevinator warmed up for his big meeting with President Obama in the land of apple pie. The man the opposition calls the toxic bore got to the core of the matter. This is the core of the global economic problem. This is the core economic problem, the core financial problem, core focus of this visit. That is a core part of our mission for the future. And a core focus of this visit is to deal with the challenge facing all of us around the world right now. It is the core of the global financial problem. Core focus of this visit to begin the core reason for being there. Those security questions are core to uh, this visit. Core part of the mission I'll be discussing also with the president. Just the core, core focus of the core, of the core, 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 the core, core focus. That is a core, 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 core. Also core is America's global economic leadership. Core, blimey, and this was Washington. So that was, um, yeah, Kevin Rudd. I mean, there's a few other Riley diaries where he's gotten the same word over and over again, and it's, uh, yeah, pretty funny. Um, but just to, to talk about in more general terms again when it's actually it's fallacious, and um, what I, I think 
the main issue here is a, is more about um, staying on message, and politicians really aren't too much to blame for it in a way. I think that it's just a consequence of the news media and the news cycle that now we've got you know, the idea of getting a sound bite out there. Um, I think it's only really fallacious if the message is just empty rhetoric. Now, and if the person who's saying it refuses to engage in deeper conversation, if they're asked, as you were saying before, you know, when if Obama, yes, we can, and they ask him, well, what, what do you mean by that? And then he talks about what he means by it and can explain it. That's fine. Um, Rudd talking about getting the balance right with a budget. That's fine as long as he then explains what he means by that, and he does to his credit. So, you know, it's not really fallacious then. But the issue is if a politician talks for 20 minutes and says one stupid sentence... That's the bit that gets played. So the longer they talk, the more risk of saying something out of context. Uh, you and I talked to uh, before too, Theo, about how difficult it would be to be a politician. Uh, both of us said it wouldn't suit our personality. Primarily, is the reason that you you couldn't actually have a sense of humour and express it because the media are hanging on every word, and as soon as you say something vaguely humorous, they'll take it out of context and blow it up. For example, um, Obama had a bowling alley in, in the White House and he he bowled a ball and it went straight into the gutter. And he was talking to some talk show host in the United States and he said, um, yeah, it was like watching the Special Olympics. You know, he's making a light-hearted comment about his lack of facility. Um, and then there were a whole lot of people. I, I guess, you know, parents of, of, of kids that went to the Special Olympics who might feel offended by that, that if somebody in a general walk of life made that sort of comment in passing, it would mean nothing, and the person actually wouldn't have a yeah. negative view of people with um, uh, disabilities and so on. But it, it's blown out of all proportion. So there, part of the reason politicians are so annoying and guarded is because they they simply have to be because the media yeah. makes them that way. And, and and really, the end point is the consumers of the media, us, uh, also make it that way. So, I, I, you know, the next time you pick up on a politician's unguarded comment and you, you state, restate it with glee to, uh, to somebody else because you're uh, against that politician, maybe you need to think about whether the... That you know, it's a warranted comment or yeah. not. What's the overall effect going to be in the long run? And then, but the thing is, the ones who get away with it and can do it uh, become heroes. So there's a few in Australia that actually are kind of hero who heroes in that sense. Like I can think of some of the ones who um, politically I don't really agree with too much, like uh, said Wilson Tucky or um, even Barnaby Joyce or whatever, because he's on the side of politics I don't generally agree with. But I have so much respect for them in one way, in that they say what they mean and they don't bullshit around about it, you know. So. Actually, for our Australian listeners, I, I had a great death. I, I used to really enjoy watching Amanda Vanstone responding to media yeah. uh, because she was really... Um, the media used to smile at themselves, like even the interviewer who was tripped up by her used to get a smile out of it because she did it in a good yeah, way. Yeah, she was awesome. And she didn't become aggressive and so on. So I think the, some people can get away with it and other people can't. And I think if if it's been your way uh, when you first became a politician yeah. uh, and before you became a minister and so on, it's, it's probably tolerated a bit more. I than, think uh, um, the best example of it backfiring really badly was in Australia. Our when was that? Was Alexander Downer the um, for the opposition leader when he did things at yes, Batter? Yes, yes. So he was the leader of the opposition, and he released a policy to do with domestic violence, and it was called the things that matter. And he made a joke. He said. 
the things that batter. Needless to say, he didn't last too long on the job after that, you idiot. He also wore fish net, fishnet stockings um, in a lovely legs competition that was done for charity that was with fun. the best best of intentions. And from that point on, every political cartoonist in Australia always depicted him Wearing in fishnet stockings. Yeah. So that's another thing to be aware of. <laughs> Don't wear fishnet stockings. Unless you wear it over your head yeah, when you're probably, back. Yeah, or you're a woman, I suppose. Um, okay, so look, just a couple more things then. Now, a lot of what we've talked about was actually talked about, uh, you know, there's a program here on the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Corporation um, which is the Australian Public Broadcaster. Um, it's a really good show. It goes for about an hour. It's called Q&A, so questions and answers. Um, it's a panel discussion uh, that has politicians and journalists and so on um, that are on it. Uh, the... Um, the, and other prominent Australians. It's about various topics, in particular ones that are on um, during uh, things that happened in the last week. And they basically had a conversation about this, about sloganeering and about um, even uh, running um, uh, focus groups to decide which slogan will work and that kind of thing. And I think they pretty much nailed it, a lot of the issues that we've talked about. It goes for about 20 minutes of the show, so I've managed to cut it down to about six or seven minutes. Um, I won't bother saying who all the people are. Oh, there's an, someone from the left-wing side of politics, someone from the right. Um, there's the moderator. There's a couple of other commentators as well, including a spin doctor, talking about it. But anyway, I think that's a really good example of um, them talking about the whole uh, sloganeering or argument by slogan. So let's have a listen to that now. But the first question tonight, as usual, comes from in the audience, and it's from Isaac Levito. Just uh, wondering how you feel about uh, this increasing use of sort of scientific techniques in politics to sort of uh, uh, trial specific terms and phrases, dial test speeches, and whether you think that diminishes the quality of information we get from our leaders? But, but the problem uh, yes. with, with all of these uh, techniques is that at the, in, in the end people don't look authentic. Uh, and that is the ultimate crime in politics. Uh, it's looking fake. Uh, and I think that's what could well come back uh, to destroy uh, the politicians who are entirely driven by the kind of focus group, market research, tested phraseology. But um, I think the point I was just picking up on from Bob is that, that you are cautious, I think, all politicians are cautious about what they say. Uh, because you know, you know how that can get you into trouble, and perhaps sometimes that means you, you think about what you say too much. Um, mm. But you also see the other side about how it can be used by political opponents um, or how people can misinterpret it. All right, I'm going to go to another question on a very similar subject. It's from John Dale. Is not spin the express intention to move away from corrupt or evade the truth? Please, politicians, how does that address the public interest? Sue Cato first. Okay, well, well, given that I'm sort of occasionally known as a spin doctor, I feel the need to, and, and not entirely in self-defence, but to actually stand back and actually, what is spin? I mean, people are saying that, uh, you know, to, to John's question, that uh, it's about evading the truth. In fact, what we're actually doing is generally working out ways to actually tell the truth and to get messages across. 
Because, no, seriously, I mean, if you stand back and you actually have a think about it. No, guys, seriously, if you stand back and look at the employee share scheme that everyone's getting into at the moment, the question is, is that reasonable policy that's been badly explained or is it actually fully bad policy? Now, there's a, a school of debate actually within the business community that, you know, very quickly people condemned it. But what the government was actually trying to achieve is, you know, there was a small target that they were aiming at in terms of big executives. But there's a real body of thought around some of the thinking commentators that, in fact, it's not bad policy. It just hasn't been well explained. Now, if the government wanted to achieve that end and wanted people to understand it and appreciate what they were trying to do, you might call it spin. You might also call it just saying it, talking about it properly and clearly. What would you say to uh, temporary deficit, for example, when in fact you're planning six deficits in a row? Well, it's, it's contemptible. Uh, anyway. <laughs> that, that, uh, that was a good hand pass, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I think we're trying to express that um, we want to come out of deficit. I mean, it, 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 can I just say what, what Sue said? Actually, people in the audience, I think. Um, reacted to it, and I understand why, but uh, that she was really expressing, I think, a lot of the discussion does occur before politicians come and say things, which is, how do you explain this clearly? Uh, I know my own portfolio, I think about, you know, how is it that we can explain this issue, which has got all these complexities mm. and all these uh, differences of issue, um, how do we explain it in a way that people will understand, particularly... Mm. I think, you know, we're, we're making the point that it is an imperative to, to come into surplus and that we are going into debt for what we think are very sound economic reasons at a time of global economic recession. Let's hear from Tony Abbott on that. Well, look, you know, uh, it's as temporary as the Second World War was temporary, and I think Bob Ellis is right. Um, that is an example of Orwellian newspeak, uh, and yet... Obviously, uh, government ministers think it matters because they never say the word deficit without putting temporary uh, in front of it. We want to talk about spin. I don't remember people saying uh, reducing wages and conditions work laws. You called it work choices. I mean... <laughs> so... I was just going to sort of lighten it up a bit and say one of the first rules, you know, that you learn when you go into politics is blame the media um, if, you, if you can't get it across. But I guess the serious side of that is, is picking up on what Penny said. It is very hard sometimes to have complex discussions in public, particularly in this day and age of the 30-second news grab, people in a hurry. So hence there are roles for people like Sue, you know, the spin doctors to try oh and help... Oh help <laughs> thank God. Help craft the message to get it across there's, in a digestible there's a, there's way. A, there's a big difference between trying to get your message across in the clearest and, dare I say it, the most palatable, palatable form and effectively trying to weave this web of semi-deceit. And when it passes from, I guess, just good PR to spin uh, is when there's an element of unreality about it. The media is, to a great deal responsible for it. Uh, you have to get into five seconds what Obama would take a leisurely 20 minutes with great cadences and caveats to explicate. If every policy decision were you know, a 20 minute utterance by the Treasurer or whomever on you know, three nights a week, it, that would be fair. It is not fair to ask of politicians a five second grab 
But Kevin Rudd never gets anything into five seconds. I mean, every answer is five minutes or more. But also, Bob's making a really important point. <laughs> if we can just get above the sort of Bob's for a minute, I think the, the point Bob's making I, I strongly agree with, and that is I actually think... In that, this program, I think, is good because, for a Wonderful. range of reasons, you actually have the... For a range of reasons, it's good, not just for you, Tony, but because, you know, you actually talk to people. But um, um, I think the way we, we narrow the political debate on some very complex issues down to whatever the grab is on the, the news, and that is what we have to do, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the best thing for public debate about mm. important issues about the country. And... Uh, I think we, if you look at the history of over the last 20 years of the way in which politics and the media have operated, we have gradually moved over time, I think, to a, a more and more truncated discussion of national politics. OK, so I don't know if you... I'll put a link to the original program. In Australia, you can download it. I don't know if... They are allowed to download if you're overseas, but it's worth it. Really worth having a look at. It's fantastic to have a show on TV that actually allows um, politicians and people to sit down and talk with one another, kind of in a less moderated situation, a more open situation. Um, it changed my view about quite a few politicians because I've gotten to watch them in action over a long period of time, not just in a in a setup interview. Um, I'd say the other thing that's good about Q and A is, is if you really do hate one of the people that's going to be on the panel, um, for the the amount of time that it's actually broadcast, you, you actually know where they are. They're actually in that room. That's right. Uh, involved in that discussion. So during that time, you can find their car and just key it. Yeah. yeah and and so that's the other advantage of, of having people you hate um, yeah, unfortunately, they trapped, you know, in a particular place at a particular time, and you can key their car. Yeah, unfortunately, they haven't done in Brisbane yet, so we're, we're waiting for them to move to Brisbane, then we can settle a few scores. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, look, the other thing is, slogans are actually can be very useful as they talk about in that conversation there, in terms of getting a message out there, um, in a short, sharp way to have an effect. And probably, I think what we'll leave this show with is a really effective. Um, bit of sloganeering in Australia, and this was for... Uh, Australia has, especially in Queensland, has the highest rate of skin cancer in the world. So this is a campaign that's famous in Australia, and everyone will know it. All our Aussies will know it. They might even sing along. So um, until next week, you've been listening to Hunting Humbug 101, and we'll leave you with a fantastic slogan, the one that I still sing along when I go to the beach. See you next week, Dad. See you, see Flip, flop, flap. Like a breeze when you say it like that. Slip, slop, slap, na-na. In the sun this summer, say, slip, slop, slap. If you're working or playing in the sun this summer, don't sit like a silly sausage. Good So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptics Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. <laughs>